This podcast is brought to you by the Dunfield Retirement Residence, a casually elegant retirement community located at Young and Eglinton in the heart of Midtown Toronto. Customized living options complement your independent, active lifestyle. Learn more at thedunfield.com. This is Bonjour Chai, the Noah to Shoah edition. I'm Avi Feingold in Montreal. Alana and David are off this week, but I'm here with a guest host. Phoebe Maltz-Bovey joins us from Toronto, and we are your Frozen Chosen. On today's show, we talk about Holocaust Education Week in Canada, we talk to Barbara Kirschenblatt-Gimblet about Holocaust museums and their evolving roles, and I have a chat with author Nathan Englander about how the Holocaust presents itself in his writing. But first, Phoebe, welcome to Bonjour Chai. It's great to be here. Thanks for having me. Awesome. I mean, you're part of the CJN team now. And uh, tell us a bit about yourself first and all of these things that you do um, before we move on. Sure. Um, So I've written one book um, called The Perils of Privilege about uh, privilege discourse and the way the idea of privilege is used um, in contemporary conversations. I also wrote a doctoral dissertation about uh, French Jewish history. So that's a totally different topic. And now I live in Canada. I'm from the States originally. I am a senior editor at the CJN and a contributing columnist at the Globe and Mail. So for today's topics, we're actually talking about Holocaust Education Week. Um, In 2019, 70 Holocaust survivors joined the March of the Living trip to Poland. In 2022, there were eight And many people believe that it would be the last march to include survivors. We'll find out this year whether that's the case or not. Um, And, you know, secondly, right, we have this idea that for years and years, um, probably about 40,000 Israeli students on average went on school trips to Poland every summer um, and to the camps there. This was generally during the summer, you know, between 11th and 12th grade. And it was like a milestone in Israeli education. And this summer, Israel announced that it was ending those trips due to Poland's memory laws, prohibiting educators from talking about any Polish involvement in the Holocaust. So, you know, there's fewer survivors, there's fewer trips to the camps. We're coming into an era where the contact with the primary sources of the Shoah, right, the actual people in the actual places is rapidly diminishing. What does that mean, right, for the future of the Shoah education? What does it mean for Jewish communal identity, uh, Jewish collective memory? What challenges does it pose? What opportunities actually could open up when, when you know, that shift happens? And we brought on uh, two amazing guests to, to talk about it. The first one is an absolute giant of Jewish academia, right? I don't know if you uh, know uh, Barbara Kirschenblatt-Gimblet. She has done so much in her career. Uh, she's made huge contributions to understanding heritage tourism, how trips like March of the Living and Birthright actually function in shaping participants and broader community identity. She's maybe best known for her work on the theory and the history of museums also. Um, and in our second segment, uh, to kick off also, we have Jewish Book Month. We're going to have Nathan Englander on to read and discuss an excerpt from his short story. I don't know if you've ever read it. What we talk about when we talk about Anne Frank. Uh, this was originally published as a short story in The New Yorker, and it later became part of a short story anthology with the same title, and eventually a play, um, which just is closing up in San Diego right now. Um, but first up, though, is Barbara Kirschenblatt Gimblet, and you'll hear our interview right after we hear from our sponsor. Are you in the market for a new watch or a special piece of jewelry? Are you looking for the perfect engagement ring to pop the question? Atelier Lou has all this and more. Eric and the team at Atelier Lou can craft a piece for you, or you can select from some of the exclusive designers that they offer. From a simple bangle to a statement necklace, Atelier Lou can make you or your loved ones sparkle. 
Located in the heart of Westmount in Montreal or online at atelierlou.com, visit Atelier Lou for your next watch or jewelry purchase. And when you do, make sure to use promo code BON18 for 10% off your next purchase. That's atelierlou.com. So if one takes the facts mentioned before to their logical conclusion, namely that if there are fewer survivors and fewer people making trips to the actual places where the Shoah occurred, then our reliance on testimonies, museums, and other recorded and material witnesses will become more and more pressing. And if that's the case, then the role of Holocaust museums and memorials will take an even more prominent role in Holocaust education. With us to discuss this is Barbara Kirshenblatt-Gimblet, an author and a museum professional. She is currently the Ronald S. Lauder Chief Curator of the Core Exhibition at Poland Museum of the History of Polish Jews in Warsaw. She is the author and editor of many books, including but not limited to Destination Culture, Tourism, Museums and Heritage, The Israel Experience Studies in Youth Travel and Jewish Identity, and Image Before My Eyes, A Photographic History of Jewish Life in Poland, 1864 to 1939, which had a very prominent place on our family bookshelf when I was growing up. And I remember seeing this book at least once a week on our shelf. Barbara, welcome to Moshe High. Thank you. People seem very concerned about the loss of living survivors, right? As a museum specialist, right? As somebody who thinks about all of these aspects here, um, you're essentially dealing with a history that doesn't necessarily have living survivors present, whether it's a thousand year history um, of, of Jews in, in Poland, um, or any other museum where you say that the, the artist isn't present or the, the history itself isn't living anymore. Um, is, is that really, um, is it a crisis that we are going through? What, what do we do with the evolution? Are we able to turn it into an opportunity, right? As a museum professional, you're obviously thinking often about the fact that we're not always going to have a survivor at a Holocaust museum to be able to provide a testimony. Um, so how do we think about this as we move into this era where we may not have survivors anymore? Well, it's the nature of history. That's history. No one outlives history. There is no history for which there, you know, I don't know whether, well, historians often said that an event is not historical until 50 years have passed. In other words, until everybody's dead. I mean, in a way, in a way, the old, I think that this represents a shift in how we think about history. I think that historically, history was the dead past not the living past. So that the idea was that if we're too close to the events, those events are not yet historical. And so in a way, we are in an era where we have a completely different expectation, which our expectation is that, of course, there are living witnesses to history. What else? I mean, why not? Now, I would go even further. I would say with regard to the Holocaust, 9-11, the current pandemic, these are events, even the Holocaust, these are events that are are being experienced as already historical before they are over. So, and I'll give you an example for the Holocaust, the Warsaw Ghetto, Emanuel Ringelblum and his team, the Oynik Shabbos team that recorded everything that was going on in the Warsaw Ghetto and beyond They had a sense that the present moment was already historical and they were already thinking about a future in which the present would be past. And they were creating the archive in the hope that they would survive. And after the war, they would write a history of the Warsaw Ghetto based on the archive. And then when they realized with the Great Deportation and then with the Warsaw Ghetto Uprising that they wouldn't survive and that all that would survive would be the archive, which they then buried 
And after the war, at least two of what we think were the three caches were excavated. There, this is a case where it's not a matter of 50 years for the past to be truly past. These are cases, and the same is true for 9-11 and also right now for the pandemic. These are cases where the experience of the present is that it's already a, 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 a past that's being envisioned in a, in a future moment. And therefore, that's why we have to record it, save every single scrap of paper in real time. That is, it's not a matter of waiting 50 years and then looking for the sources. It's a matter of creating the archive in real time in anticipation of a moment in the future where the present will be passed. That's very, very specific. I'm not aware. I mean, I, I just think that is of our time. I, I don't know. I mean, I'm thinking to myself, the Civil War. I wonder if during the Civil War, people had that same kind of historical consciousness in the present moment, in real time. You know, I have a feeling probably the answer is yes, but we haven't been thinking about it in that way. So that would be my first comment. So the second is that I don't know whether our, the incredible importance appropriately, the incredible importance we place upon survivors is true for other living witnesses of history. I, I don't know. I, you know, I don't know if for the Warsaw Ghetto, for the Warsaw Uprising, for example, I know that those who lived through it and those who were witnesses of it are deeply, deeply valued. But I don't know whether there's the same feeling of crisis with their passing. Maybe. I, I don't know. But I do know that in the case of Holocaust museums that have depended so strongly on the incredible emotional power of meeting and talking with a survivor that they cannot imagine anything as impactful. And so this feeling of crisis is, is really profound. It, you know, is it a crisis? Is it not? It's certainly felt and experienced as a crisis. And there's this sense of enormous loss, not only of these extraordinary individuals, but of everything they've been able to offer uh, during their lives. So certainly there, there is the feeling of crisis, that's for sure. I wonder how much just has to do with the sort of ongoing concerns about Holocaust denialism, right? So the idea that you need for this specifically people who can bear witness personally, um, whereas I don't know with other historical events, whether there was so much, you know, there may have been more dispute about exactly what happened, but not the sort of on that scale dispute. Well, you know, it'd be very interesting to look at the strategies that uh, were used at Deborah Lipstadt's trial with David Irving in response to your question. And that is, is the feeling of crisis with the loss of living survivors linked to Holocaust denial? That's, that's your question. And what I would say is that here is where there's a very, very important role for history. And I would say that we have to distinguish between commemoration and history, between memory and history, between memorials and museums. They play very, they're complementary. They play very, very different roles. And what I recall from the David Irving, Deborah Lipstadt trial is that the case rested 
on historical evidence and not survivor testimony. That was that was what the case rested on. So there are two things that are, in a way, opportunities. Not that we couldn't have seized these opportunities earlier. We could have. But now, in a sense that we cannot rely on living memory, these opportunities become even more important. What are they? Number one, they are a greater focus on the testimonies and evidence that was that were left by those who did not survive. There are diaries, there are letters, there are reports, there is all kind of material from those who did not survive and where we don't have the power and the impact of their living presence, but we have something else, which is to say what they recorded in real time. And I just finished reading an extraordinary diary uh, by Ari Nyberg about his experiences in the Warsaw Ghetto and especially during during the Warsaw Ghetto uprising. And he originally wrote them in real time and then the notebooks were lost and he rewrote them immediately after the war. So it's as close to in real time as you can get. And there, of course, there are others that were really written literally in the bunkers as the Warsaw Ghetto was going on. There's a real difference between these reports, these diaries, these accounts that are written on the spot in real time and the accounts that are recalled 60, 70, 80 years after the events. They're both enormously valuable. Um, I'm not trying to suggest that one is more valuable than the other, but the, the impact of the living survivor has very much been the focus of what Holocaust museums and education do. But now, now there's an opportunity to really mine these other very, in other words, those who didn't survive, and their stories and their accounts are incredible. So that's that would be the that would be the first thing. The second would be uh, to strengthen, that is to say, the 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 element of memory and memorialization and commemoration. Right now, I would argue is stronger than the focus on history. So yes, there's Holocaust education, and yes, they learn everything about the Holocaust. But when you think about what has emotional impact, the facts themselves don't have the kind of emotional impact that an encounter with a living survivor or a visit to the actual sites themselves, Auschwitz, Majdanek, Belzec, whatever the sites may be, but visiting those sites, have they're enormously powerful emotionally. And the feeling is that with Holocaust education, if you don't engage the emotions, then that education doesn't have impact. In other words, it's not about simply about facts. It's about what I would call felt facts, facts that are actually felt, that register emotionally. For them to register emotionally, you have to have, I would, I would say, embodied experiences. Whether those experiences are embodied by a living survivor or those experiences are embodied by a visit to an actual site. So those, you know, the actual sites we still have, the living survivors we will, before very long, not have. But the, then the, the, the question becomes, is that really ultimately where all the emphasis is? Or is there a place for really engaging with what history has to offer and not simply as a dry academic kind of subject that you get tested on and get a grade, but where history is taught in a in a way that really engages 
I would say the critical thinking, the curiosity, the desire to know and to know more, and also to feel the impact, the importance, the conse how consequential this history actually is. So those are the two opportunities, the in real time accounts by those who didn't survive and a kind of high quality in engagement of the intellectual imagination as well as the feelings of young people, of the public in history as such, and not only in memory and in commemoration. Along those lines, right, I uh, sometimes I personally feel like, and it's not just me, although I'm not going to put words in anybody else's mouth, but I can speak for myself, um, that we're sometimes dealing with a lot of oversaturation of um, the Holocaust, Holocaust commemorations, Holocaust films, literature, art, moments when we keep bringing this up, um, and that sometimes can serve to dull what you know exactly those those emotional moments um, that serve you know to heighten you know the emotionality and the and the the the, con the the reality of what's actually been going on, right? I I feel like sometimes we're actually living in a Holocaust museum if you're within certain sectors of the Jewish yeah, community. Yeah, no, I get it. And, and but museums are meant to be visited and not necessarily meant to be like lived in. And you know, you this is probably something that you think about a lot more than I do. Um, does this concern you in terms of what you've just said, in terms of the the, the impact of Holocaust museums and sites? Um, is there an alternative to doing this? Or is it really like this is all in line with um, the way in which it should be done? So I think that it would be worth trying to understand why the Holocaust is such a prominent part of the educational agenda of the organized Jewish community. In Israel, obviously North America, I think that, that that's worth trying to understand. And what I would argue is that there may be three aspects. One is a concern about Jewish continuity and Jewish identity. And um, the belief that the single best way to address that concern is by an encounter with the Holocaust. In other words, with the existential danger that the Holocaust represented and all that it represents, today's anti-Semitism. In other words, in a way, it's the single most powerful, I would say, tool in the arsenal for addressing a kind of crisis of Jewish continuity and identity. That, that is to say that if you have a younger generation that doesn't, that doesn't go to synagogue, doesn't identify particularly with Judaism or religion, I mean, it, it's not that they reject it, but they just, they don't go to synagogue. It's not a big deal for them. Maybe they don't identify with Israel and maybe they have absolutely no, not much Jewish cultural literacy. They don't necessarily read, you know, in, uh, uh, never mind Shalom Aleichem, but, uh, contemporary Jewish works. So when you, you know, that when there is this feeling that Jewish identity is weaker, that Jewish continuity is at stake, there is a kind of existential, the feeling of an ex existential crisis, whether there is one or not, isn't the issue, but the feeling that there is one, how we're going to address it. And quite often, the way to, the, the idea is that the Holocaust is such a powerful message, and it does symbolize the, it's a kind of the ultimate symbol of an existential crisis to wipe out an entire to wipe out an entire people, 
that that it's the magic bullet is and of course the metaphor of the magic bullet is a very unfortunate metaphor for this I just wanted to say, to put it crudely, what it sounds like is that fear is a more powerful motivator than uh, so many other forms that we can do. And then it's a great fundraising tool. And so let's let's rely on all of this so much um, for better or for worse. Yes. And I would say that it's a difference. You know, we have to make a different uh, a distinction between those that are the descendants of survivors because there are more and more of them. There's second generation, third generation, fourth generation. Their relationship to this topic is of a completely different order. It has very much to do with honoring the memory and the experience of their parents, grandparents, great-grandparents. So I think that that's a category of its own. But then there's this other category of, of young people where the perception is that they're disaffected. They don't really relate much to things Jewish. And that, yes, the, the existential crisis that is, that is symbolized by the Holocaust. Uh, so, okay, so that's the first thing. Yes, that that it's so emotionally powerful and there are so many important messages. So that would be one Jewish identity and continuity. One there's the second one. And that is for these, for this generation, many of them identify more with issues of social justice, not specifically Jewish issues of social justice, but issues of social justice than they do with anything specifically Jewish. So, in other words, they're more likely to identify with Black Lives Matter or with the issues of immigration at the Mexican border or with uh, hunger, with the Ukrainian refugees, with climate and, and um, environmental issues. So, and they may or may not understand that commitment as something Jewish. In other words, tikkun alam, repairing the world. And to repair the world is the whole world, not just the Jewish world. So there's a way in which, can you give me just a second? Uh, Maxie, Max, honey, I'm, I'm doing a podcast recording, so there should be no noise. Okay, so, so then what happens is that the Holocaust becomes a kind of um, starting point for dealing with if you, if you will, um, issues of conscience that are much broader, other genocides, is, issues of social injustice, economic injustice, uh, human rights. Um, so there's a way in which the Holocaust sits less in relation to Jewish history and more in relation to other genocides and other cases of violations of human rights and of injustice. So that would be the sort of the second way that the Holocaust gets positioned and why it's considered a, a better point of entry, if you will, for engaging a younger generation that is not identifying with anything Jewish in any other way. So that would be, I would say, that would be the second. Now, the third. And this brings us to something that you raised earlier. I actually don't, I shouldn't even raise it because maybe you would forget to raise it. But anyway, um, and that has to do with the Holocaust taking precedence over Jewish history is a much longer story. And so, in other words, there are probably more chairs in Holocaust studies than in Jewish studies. There are probably more new Holocaust museums and centers being created than Jewish museums or museums of Jewish history. And the idea that this incredibly cataclysmic and defining event would be 
what thousands of years of Jewish history are reduced to is, to my way of thinking, a very serious issue and a missed opportunity. And so the opportunity is also an opportunity to recover a much broader and wider history, a much broader and wider Jewish history in multiple historical contexts, whether it's Poland or France or the United States or wherever it might be, and to position or situate the Holocaust within that much broader history, whether it's 300 years, 1,000 years, 2,000 years, 5,000 years, whatever it might be. And that is an opportunity. Yeah. The, to, to that, I would add the one piece of that. If uh, when we center it, we often, uh, as a result of that, end up negating the Sephardic experience and the Sephardic uh, aspects of Judaism because you know, we, when you think about the Holocaust, you end up thinking in a very Ashkenormative manner. Yes, and actually the Sephardic story is part of the Holocaust story, in fact. If sure, Ball, but not nearly, you, you, have to, you have to actually dig. You don't think about Absolutely. it in terms of Poland. And, and, no, yeah. be- because, you know, Hitler's in Germany and the epicenter of the genocide is in Poland and what is today Ukraine, Belarus, and, uh, and that area. So, uh, yeah, you're quite right. I studied, actually, I did my PhD at NYU and sort of, related to Jewish studies. So I'm very interested in all of this. Um, but what was your dissertation on uh, intermarriage in 19th century, uh, in 19th century France between Jews and Catholics? And I worked with Marion Kaplan, actually. So, um, oh, great. She's wonderful. Yeah. Yeah. Um, so I guess one question I had was just um, whether the mission of the March of the Living has much in common with the mission of Birthright Israel Taglit going to your to, to the heart of your question as to what is it they're trying to achieve and one 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 goal of which for birthright more than march of the living would be to encourage jews to meet each other and perhaps even uh, even ultimately marry each other because i think that intermarriage is considered part of the sort of existential crisis of jewish continuity so that you know identity is considered one intermarriage is considered another so that that's fair with March of the Living, uh, I think that I don't know how much of a difference there is, but maybe there might be a, like a difference in emphasis between the way in which the diaspora March of the Living's work and the way the Israel ones work. So I don't know that Israel even calls theirs March of the Living, but the Israel groups that come and they do pretty much the same thing, and the diaspora ones. With the diaspora ones, uh, and the ones that I actually studied together with Sam Heilman and Harvey Goldberg in the, in the book that you cited, those ones are, and, and to some, and actually the Israeli ones too, they're actually very scripted. And that is the narrative is you go from darkness to light. You go from tragedy to hope. You go from the lesson of the Holocaust to the redemption of the state of Israel. And in that way, they, uh, I hate to put it this way, because I think that March of the Living is very well-intentioned and I think that it has, over the years, really broadened its its educational mandate and that it's actually broader than the Holocaust and that many of the groups who come to Poland have a much broader experience. They don't only go to death sites. They come to Poland Museum. They meet with their Polish peers. They meet with the Polish righteous. They have a much broader experience than what was originally envisioned, which was literally to go from one death camp to another. So to be fair, it's a bigger, broader experience. But 
there is a way, or if you will, there is a danger with these trips that they instrumentalize the Holocaust in an effort to strengthen support and identification with Israel, because that's also considered to be very, very important in terms of Jewish continuity, and also because Israel can no longer depend on the, uh, if you will, automatic support of the diaspora. There, there is a younger generation that is disenchanted, and particularly, you know, with the most recent election, if that can be of any indication how that's received outside of Israel. So there, there. I remember when I was growing up. Support for Israel was absolutely unqualified. I grew up in a Zionist household. I went to a labor Zionist summer camp in Ontario on Lake Erie. Um, I belonged to Habonim, and my mother was belonged to Pioneer Women. And there was no question that support for Israel was 100% unqualified. I cannot say that about American Jews today or Canadian Jews today. I can't say that. And so that actually is really, really serious. And so to some degree, these trips, which are choreographed so that you begin with the Holocaust and you end and you have this very somber, commemorative, very emotionally, very powerful, traumatic experience in Poland. And then it's all light and joy and um, the sort of triumph of the forming of the state of Israel. So I think that, that that's going on also. It brings us back to our first point of uh, Yad Vashem is actually scripted in this way so that when you're done, you're you know Absolutely. overlooking the sun coming on the, over the, the, the Jerusalem hills. And, it's, and Jerusalem. Absolutely. Absolutely. I mean, that is, you know, and in America, you're overlooking the Statue of Liberty and Ellis Island. Uh, so, um, and in um, the Holocaust Museum, it's about the Americans liberating the camps and it's right on the site of the, you know, right near the National Mall in the nation's capital. You know, so it's these are these are, if you will, narratives that are, if you will, these are narratives that unfold in space so that it's not only the story that's told inside the museum. It's also the way that the museum is positioned in relation to everything around it. This has this really has been most enlightening. Uh, Barbara, thank you so much for joining us. OK, my pleasure. Okay, thank you. You can find links to the works of Barbara Kirshenblatt-Gimblet in our show notes. And as always, we would love to hear what you thought. Please email us at bonjour at thecjn.ca and let us know. Coming up, my chat with Nathan Englander. Did you know April 2023 is Israel's 75th anniversary? In honor of this huge milestone, UJA Federation of Greater Toronto is planning an epic trip to Israel, and all of Canada is invited. Israel's anniversary, Yom Ha'atzma'ut, is a one-of-a-kind experience. Streets are filled with parties, fireworks, music, and dancing. On UJA's Israel 75, you'll get to join the celebration. 75 is not a regular anniversary, and Israel 75 is not your typical trip. You'll get a truly unique experience of the country, no matter how many times you've been before. With 10 specialized tracks, you can create an itinerary that is totally personalized, whether you're a foodie, an adrenaline seeker, a TV buff, or politically minded. The best part? You can mix and match tracks on different days. Embark on a thrilling adventure one day and a culinary experience the next. Let your own interests be your guide and experience everything Israel has to offer. To learn more about the trip, visit 
visit ujaisrael75.com. That's ujaisrael75.com. We're kicking off Jewish Book Month. Stay tuned for more book segments throughout the month of November. For today, though, we hear an excerpt from the short story, What We Talk About When We Talk About Anne Frank, read by the author, Nathan Englander. In the story, the characters play what one of them calls the Anne Frank game and forces the reader to grapple with what happens when remembrance crosses the line into obsession. We then have a chance to chat about the story and the Holocaust education, literature, and art in general. I caught up with Nathan in Toronto, where he currently lives. Nathan, you're going to about to read an excerpt for us from your short story, which just got turned into a play, what we talk about when we talk about Anne Frank. Um, can you give us a bit of a background to uh, this story and to the excerpt that you're about to read to us? I should set up the story, which is really about a couple in South Florida um, the woman went to yeshiva, and her, as did her best friend. She married someone secular and became secular. And her friend, who became Hasidish or Haredi, um, and her husband, also American, have come back to the States for a visit, and they're having their reunion. Two friends who've taken the most extreme opposite Jewish paths uh, come together for an afternoon, and hilarity ensues. Oh. Before I start, um, since we're starting mid-story, I should mention that uh, Mark and Lauren have become Shoshana and Yeruchim, and the narrator um, unkindly refers to uh, think of them by their new Hebrew uh, names that they live by. So he calls them Mark and Lauren, and they are Shoshana and Yeruchim. There aren't six people there, just four, if that's useful. Here goes. From what we talk about when we talk about Anne Frank. The four of us stand in the pantry, soaking wet, hunting through the shelves and dripping on the floor. Have you ever seen such a pantry, Shoshana says, reaching her arms out? It's gigantic. It is indeed large, and it is indeed stocked, an enormous amount of food, and an enormous selection of sweets, befitting a home that is often host to a swarm of teenage boys. Are you expecting a nuclear winter, Shoshana says? I'll tell you what she's expecting, I say. You want to know how Holocaust-obsessed she really is? I mean, to what degree? To no degree, Deb says. We are done with the Holocaust. Tell us, Shoshana says. She's always plotting our secret hiding place, I say. No kidding, Shoshana says. Like, look at this. At the pantry with the bathroom next to it and the door to the garage. If you sealed it all up, like put drywall at the entrance to the den, you'd never suspect. If you covered that door inside the garage up good with, I don't know, if you hung your tools in front of it and hid hinges behind, maybe lean the bikes and the mower against it, you'd have this closed area with running water and a toilet and all this food. I mean, if someone sneaked into the garage to replenish things, you could rent out the house, put in another family without their having any idea. Oh my God, Shoshana says. My short-term memory may be gone from having all those children and from the smoking, I say. And from that too. But I remember from when we were kids, Shoshana says, turning to Deb. You were always getting me to play games like that, to pick out spaces. And even worse, even darker. Don't, Deb says. I know what you're going to say, I tell her, and I'm honestly excited. The game, yes? She played that crazy game with you. No, Deb says, enough. Let it go. And Mark, 
who is utterly absorbed in studying kosher certifications, who is tearing through 100-calorie snack packs and eating handfuls of roasted peanuts, and who has said nothing since we entered the pantry except, what's a fig Newman? He stops and says, I want to play this game. It's not a game, Deb says. And I'm happy to hear her say that, as it's just what I've been trying to get her to admit for years, that it's not a game, that it's dead serious and a kind of preparation and an active pathology that I prefer not to indulge. It's the Anne Frank game, Shoshana says, right? Seeing how upset my wife is, I do my best to defend her. I say, no, it's not a game. It's just what we talk about when we talk about Anne Frank. How do we play this non-game, Mark says. What do we do? It's the righteous Gentile game, Shoshana says. It's who will hide me, I say. In the event of a second Holocaust, Deb says, giving in, it's a serious exploration, a thought experiment that we engage in, that you play, Shoshana says. That in the event of an American Holocaust, we sometimes talk about which of our Christian friends would hide us. I don't get it, Mark says. Of course you do, Shoshana says. It's like this. If there was a Shoah, if it happened again, say you were in Jerusalem and it's 1941 and the Grand Mufti got his way, what would Jebediah do? What could he do, Mark says? He could hide us. He could risk his life and his families and everyone's around him. That's what the game is. Would he, for real, would he do that for you? He'd be good for that, a Mormon, Mark says. Forget this pantry. They have to keep a year of food stored in case of the rapture or something like that. Water, too, a year of supplies. Or maybe it's that they have sex through a sheet. No, wait. I think that's supposed to be us. All right, Deb says. Let's not play. Really. Let's go back to the kitchen. I can order in from the Glad Kosher place. We can eat outside, have a real dinner, and not just junk. No, no, Mark says. I'll play. I'll take it seriously. So would the guy hide you, I say. The kids too, Mark says. I'm supposed to pretend that in Jerusalem he's got a hidden motel or something where he can put the 12 of us? Yes, Shoshana says. In their seminary or something, sure. Mark thinks about this for a long, long time. He eats Fig Newmans and considers, and you can tell that he's taking it seriously, serious to the extreme. Yes, Mark says, looking choked up. Jeb would do that for us. He would risk it all, Shoshana nods. Now you go, she says. You take a turn. But we don't know any of the same people anymore, Deb says. We usually just talk about the neighbors. Our cross-the-street neighbors, I tell them. They're the perfect example. Because the husband, Mitch, he would hide us. I know it. He'd lay down his life for what's right. But that wife of his? Yes, Deb says. Mitch would hide us, but Gloria, she'd buckle. When he was at work one day, she'd turn us in. You could play against yourselves, Shoshana says. What if one of you wasn't Jewish? Would you hide the other? I'll do it, I say. I'll be the Gentile because I could pass best. A grown woman with an ankle-length denim skirt in her closet, they'd catch you in a flash. Fine, Deb says. And I stand up straight, put my shoulders back like maybe I'm in a lineup. I stand there with my chin raised so my wife can study me so she can decide if her husband really has what it takes. Would I have the strength? Would I care enough? And it is not a light question, not a throwaway question, to risk my life to save her and our son. 
Deb stares and Deb smiles and gives me a little push to my chest. Of course he would. Thanks. The impetus actually for bringing you on um, was this one line uh, that you have in there um, where you talk about uh, Lauren in the story having this unhealthy obsession. And this story and the episode that you just read is very much the apotheosis of what happens when one has an unhealthy obsession with the Holocaust. The whole point of the story and the play were, you know, I, I, I can reference my Israel-Palestine novel, Dinner at the Center of the Earth. It, it, I got the way to say it from writing that book, where I said, why am I writing this book? Not to lecture. I don't believe in didactic fiction. I think that's corrupted if you have some ulterior motive and you're trying to convert people to some belief. You know what I'm saying? If I write a novel that's trying to, supposed to turn mm-hmm. you into vegetarian, I don't think that's going to be, at least in my hands, it's not going to be something I would stand by. It should be an exploration of why we're vegetarians and what, why some people eat meat. You know, like that's like, I'm very interested in looking at things. So the Israel-Palestine novel made me clear that anyone who would pick it up is probably someone who is so sure in their beliefs that they're immobile. And I just wanted people to think about how they think. And that's in a sense what this story, now I have words for this story that was written before the book and the play that was finished after which is, yes, I want people to consider how they use it. Uh, the piece that I actually reflected the most on when I went back to reread it um, in to prepare for this um, was the nature of the two differences with the un- unhealthy obsessions with, uh, as you said, you were in a community and I was in that same community, in the Haredi community. When you grow up, there is an unhealthy obsession with the Holocaust, or at least there's so much of it there. and um, But the nature of the way in which this obsession manifests itself is very, very different in the Haredi community and in um, contemporary secular Judaism or non-Haredi uh, Judaism. Yes, I'm very interested in how we remember on all fronts. You know, I was very interested in guilt being attached to it. You know, this notion that like God turns away for a reason, you know, like all those ideas of whether... Or, or the uh, comparing other things, intermarriage as a, as a Holocaust, like that is for sure, right? That is not a shocking, you have heard that before, like treating it as a different kind of Holocaust, the loss of, yeah, so I'm saying that to me, you can, you know, is, 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 that's really a pretty disrespectful, also, you, I can, it definitely makes clear how serious intermarriage is to you, but it is very different than sticking people in ovens, you know what I'm saying? So, I, yes, I'm I'm very interested in all those uses and different claims. It gets back to who should be saying, you know, I remember reading this story or giving a talk about this story, you know, when I was on German book tour and Austrian book tour. And I remember someone asking like so sweetly and sincerely in Vienna, like, should you be, you know, should you be writing this story? Like, or saying that, whatever I'd said, they're like, should you be saying that, you know, some either point of the story, reading from the story? And I really, it it was so huge for me. I was like, you know what? Like I should, but maybe you shouldn't. You know, I don't sing along to all the words. If I'm listening to certain songs, they're not my words to say. Like that's the point, you know? So I, 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 I think in that notion, like Seinfeld, you know, Seinfeld doing the soup Nazi or, or a Schindler's List episode are hysterical and it's his, you know, like, I feel like that's owned in the right way. Yeah. Just, just it's how time works is I think, you know, why, you know, springtime for Hitler, why Mel Brooks can make the producers or Nazis in space, you know, like, I think it's exploring how things change and how time works and our connection to time. 
you know, just simply, I think I read an article in the Times, I think it was October 19th or something, but to the idea to find out in the States, the last child of a slave just died, you know, a couple of weeks ago. And that's like so moving to be like, oh, I was alive, you know, with a, you know, like that idea how you touch history where you say like, this is, you know, where someone has a parent, like that's, that's what'll happen. Then it'll be the last child of a survivor. Like hopefully I'd may have asked from Shana, you know, you know, in a long time, but you know, it, yes, it's very strange, you know, that this thing that was part of my life is, is really, you know, turning, truly turning to memory, you know, that will be, and again, you know, how we remember, but yes, arts, I don't think, you know, one hopes across time that the things, you know, the things that will live or deserve to live as memory are the both the accurate ones and artistically the good ones. Who knows, you know, what what's what will be the book that lives on as Holocaust memory. I myself, you know, if people say I write about that, I I feel like I can remember writing two things about it. You know, my story, the tumblers and and um and this short story, and, and to me, they're both about how we remember. They're not about the Holocaust at all. They're about Holocaust education or Holocaust memory or how, how society uses that memory. Nathan, uh, thank you for coming on, back on Bonjour Chai. You're now uh, one of the few uh, three-time guests now. So uh, we hope we can get you again and again and again. Yay. Um, and thank you for talking to us today. Now is the time in our podcast where we talk about our nachas, that thing that made us feel Jewish, Canadianish, good in general overall over the past week. Phoebe, what's your nachas this week? I'm reading, and I realize this is not a visual medium, but I, I have it here with me, uh, Secret City, The Hidden History of Gay Washington by James Kerchick, uh, who's a tablet columnist and also you know writes on a bunch of... Jewish topics as well. Um, I've just started it. I heard him interviewed by Dan Savage, actually, on Dan Savage's podcast, and it just seemed like it's going to be really fascinating, and it's going to be interesting to see how, because he's sort of conservative, um, gay and conservative, and I'm curious sort of how the book will approach kind of identity topics in a different way than maybe a more progressive author might. I will... uh keep that on my list or I'll put it on my list because it wasn't on my list before. <laughs> um, I went last night uh, to something that I'd never done before. Um, the There's an Israeli uh, dancer who has a company called the Hofesh Schechter Dance Company. His name is Hofesh Schechter. He used to dance with Batsheva. I have never been to a dance performance in my life, um, modern ba- or classical ballet, any of that. Um, it was... I don't, it's, it was interesting. So, um, I mean, the piece itself was beautiful. I can really appreciate the fluidity of it all and everything like that. But I was, th- I ended up thinking more about the, just like the nature of, you know, uh, to immerse yourself, what happens when you immerse yourself in an experience, like an art experience for which you don't have the frame of reference. So I couldn't tell, right? I can tell that it was beautiful, but I couldn't tell what makes it professional or what made it not professional, as opposed to, for example, if I went to a music performance or if I went to a class, you know, in, in, in a Jewish topic or something, which is something which I have familiarity and facility with. Um, it was interesting to absorb and appreciate something for which I was just like, this was great or this was not great, right? I didn't have the notes to, to like discuss it in a real way. Um, and I think as an experience, that in and of itself was something interesting. Like if you're not into poetry, 
go to a poetry reading um, and see what it's like to to get yourself out of your comfort zone artistically. Um, so I thought that was interesting. Uh, there was anything particularly Jewish about it, other than he was Israeli and a possibly other than some of the other dancers were. And I was expecting maybe something a little bit here and there. There was a piece called uh, Double Murder with a lot of like macabre, you know, like dancing and pantomiming of murder. And I was like, is this just, is dance just about miming, you know, experiences or not? I was like, it's got to be more than that. Um, but it was beautiful and it was nice. And I encourage people, go do something that you're not used to doing. Um, that That's my nachos of the week. Thank you for listening to Bonjour Chai for the week ending November 5th, Shabbat Parashat Lech Lecha. The show is produced and edited by Zach Kaufman. The executive producer for CJN Podcasts is Michael Freeman. Our music is by SoCalled. We are a project of the Jewish Living Lab and are distributed by the CJN Podcast Network. You can listen to all our past episodes on our page at thecjn.ca slash bonjour, and you can subscribe to the podcast and automatically receive all episodes on Apple, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. We'd love it if you told a friend about Bonjour Chai. It's one of the best ways we get new listeners. As always, you can email us with comments at bonjour at thecjn.ca. I'm Avi Feingold. I forgot to tell you, you have to end with your name. And I'm Phoebe Maltz-Bovey. The Dunfield Retirement Residence offers customized living options to complement your independent active lifestyle. Welcome home. Welcome to the Dunfield. Visit us at thedunfield.com to book a personal tour.